Now, seeing as it's our first Sunday back in what seems like ages, um, it is ages, isn't it? Uh, I thought we'd look at the passage of Scripture, the verse of Scripture that is probably one of the key Scriptures that our faith is founded on. It's probably the reason why this building was built all those years ago, 100 and something years ago. It's probably the Scripture that you turn to uh, often to kind of like confirm your own faith, but also it's probably the Scripture that you turn to to actually help someone else understand your faith as well. Now, what scripture might that be? Any ideas? John 3.16, got it in one. So, you probably don't have to turn there because you know it so well, many of you. But turn to John 3.16, um, and that's where we're going to begin our message. Because it, not it great that we can come back into the building and the first message that we kind of share with one another, which we've already been sharing actually from scripture, is salvation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, how men and women might be saved. So let's read from John 3.16. This is Jesus Christ himself explaining the gospel to a man called Nicodemus, a religious uh, leader. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes... Now, the best way I think of translating that Greek word there is trust in... Whoever trusts in, relies on, or clings to. Better than believe, because our word believe could, you know, you could believe in all sorts of things, fairies and things like that. It doesn't make them real, and it doesn't really make change your life, does it? But trust, rely on, cling to is a better translation. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes, trusts in, relies and clings to, believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, those that believe in Jesus, Jesus says, change from perishing into having eternal life. Therefore, it stands that those who do not believe, trust and cling to Jesus, do not receive eternal life, but continue to perish. Is that right? Is that a correct understanding? Now, it would seem like eternal life and perishing are polar opposites. Whatever eternal life is, perishing or to perish would be the opposite of eternal life. But what is eternal life and what is perishing? Well, we know in Jesus, John 17, 3, that Jesus explained what eternal life is. He said eternal life is knowing forever Jesus and the Father. And we know it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that that happens now and forever. So that's eternal life, knowing God now and forever. True life, with a capital L, is about being alive, not just physically, but spiritually. God is a spirit, Jesus explained in John 4, didn't he? And he's made us as spirits to be joined to his spirit. So I've just been put off by my my echo outside. If I speak quicker, I won't be able to hear it. So, hence the phrase, being born again, which Jesus first used about someone's spirit being regenerated and then joined to God's spirit. That's what happens when someone is born again. They receive this eternal life, a union, a joining with God's spirit, with their spirit. They become alive. They now have eternal life. They're no longer perishing. That's what it means. But what if a person does not get born again and receive this eternal life? Well, according to Jesus, they perish. 
Now, what does perishing look like? Well, we could say that to not have eternal life is to have eternal death. That's one way of looking at what perishing is. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death. An eternal God creates eternal people. God is a spirit. We're creating his image. He created spirits. And spirits live on forever. God created eternal people. So to have eternal life is to have a union with God now that continues forever. And to perish is to be separated from God in this life and then to be continue to live in separation after your physical death, but you go on spiritually, perishing or separated from God. Now, the Greek word for the word perish that Jesus used is really uncomfortable because one good translation of it is eternally miserable. An eternity, now and forever, separated from God, who is love, light and goodness, is eternal misery. But because of God's goodness and mercy and the wonder of his creation, even those who are separated from God in this life and perishing, they perhaps don't notice their spiritual misery because there's so much beauty around There's so many creature comforts that many people have. There's so much medication that people have that it masks their spiritual misery. They don't feel it as much as perhaps someone else who hasn't got these comforts and things like that. Because of God's goodness and mercy and the wonder of his creation, even those who are obviously wicked still experience his goodness, don't they? You may have heard, the, heard or you actually used the quote yourself. The sun shines on the righteous. You know, so a Christian has a good thing. You say, well, the sun does shine on the righteous. But actually, that's only quoting half the verse. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. This is what the full, uh, what do you call it, sentence that Jesus said says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 Jesus said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, he can ask you to do that because you've received eternal life. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you and he is welling up love, peace, joy and all the fruit of the Spirit inside you. So Jesus can ask this of you for a born again. You've got eternal life. Now, use it. Okay? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, unrighteous and righteous people receive the same blessings in God's eyes sometimes, or quite often. God is is good. Amen. Amen. His nature is to forgive. That's his nature. Love, forgiveness, mercy. His nature is to even forgive his enemies if they'll let him. And he expects his children to do the same. He created the earth and all, it, and all of it is to be a blessing to mankind, didn't he? he? He created it so that we would taste and see that the Lord is good, as it says in Psalm 34. And in Romans 2, 4, it says, 
The goodness of God is intended to lead you to salvation. But sadly, it seems that also the same goodness of God and his patience actually masks people's true miserable state of perishing. Because they experience his goodness, they don't really are truly aware of their spiritual perishing. For many who do not have eternal life, because they live in a world founded on God's goodness, and they've got these creature comforts and medication and whatever, that actually their spiritual misery might not be that apparent to them, or to you, or to someone else, or they might not admit it. You might not be able to tell. But even if the cracks of misery do begin to appear, who really knows what's on the other side, right? That's their reasoning. Well, you don't really know, and if there is a God, who knows what happens, really? But deep down, in every human heart, there's a knowledge or a sense of an afterlife. And that is because the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into every human heart. Now, over the years, humankind has interpreted this subconscious knowledge of eternity with all sorts of wacky ways, like reincarnation and the comforting thought that my grandma is a star twinkling down on me. We have this sense that there is something afterwards. It's because God has put eternity in our hearts. But one thing Jesus and Scripture makes clear is that this life is just the beginning. The best or the worst is yet to come, depending on whether a person receives eternal life or not. Now, we know from the Bible that eternal life leads to passing from this life to glory. It leads to heaven. It leads to a home personally built by Jesus in his Father's house. It leads to a new heaven and a new earth. It leads to no more pain, suffering, death. It's joy everlasting, as Isaiah 51 says. Hallelujah. That's good, isn't it? If we thought we tasted and seen that the Lord is good in this life, just wait until we're there, until we're face to face in his love, his light, and his goodness. However, can you imagine the eternal alternative? Can you imagine a place eternally separated from God who is love, who is light, who is goodness, who is mercy? Can you imagine a place completely opposite to that that is devoid of love, light, and goodness? The Bible calls this specific place and existence hell. It's the place Jesus described in Matthew 25 where he said, it's the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. But sadly, Jesus also went on to explain that it's also the place where those who are perishing are heading towards too. It's the place in Luke 16 where Jesus described how people are existing on after their death in torment and agony, surrounded by evil. That's the, the other place, the other alternative, the eternal alternative. So it would seem, or also, sorry, several scriptures in Revelation refer to this place, or hell, being sent to hell, as the second death. There's four passages in Revelation that say the second death. 
So it would seem that you've got two choices. People have two choices. You're either born twice and die once and go on to glory, or you're born once, don't get born again, and you die twice and go to eternity without God. And as Jesus spoke out those famous words in John 3.16, he knew this. And he probably knew that later on, his words were going to probably be the best known words throughout the world. Or some of the best known words, John 3.16. That is why Jesus said this. He knew how important it would be for the world to hear this message. Believe in me and you have eternal life. If you don't, you're perishing. The entire human race needs to know and make a decision. Now, four of us from the Green this Wednesday morning, we went out to hand out Christian tracts which explain this very thing to people. Some people we just handed them to, some people we stopped and had conversations with. And Dee and I spoke to four uh, burly builders sitting on the bench in the Crescent. And I was just about to hand one to one of the guys and he immediately saw what it was and went, no, no. And then he began to tell me what was wrong with the world. Have you ever had that experience? As soon as the subject of God comes up, they turn it to how awful the world is, what the problems are in the world, immigration, and all sorts of things, as if to say, well, you know, God's done this, God's done that, what's God doing about this, and all the things. And, oh, why is that? That often when God comes, the subject of God comes along, it immediately gets steered away from Jesus and onto politics and blame. It probably has something to do with the, was it the, um, the sorrow of the world? Worldly sorrow, Corinthians says, leads to death. But godly sorrow leads to salvation, or repentance and salvation. What you're hearing is worldly sorrow. So, Jesus experienced this same problem. So if you turn to Luke 13, Jesus experienced the same problem of people turning it suddenly to politics and blame. Luke 13 Verse 1. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now apparently some scandal has occurred in which the Roman governor had ordered his soldiers to slaughter a group of people from Galilee who had come to visit the temple to worship. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So from Jesus' reply, it would seem that those speaking to Jesus was applying the same politics and blame kind of policy or theory themselves when talking to Jesus. But Jesus gets to the point. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. There's that word from the lips of Jesus again, perish. They're wanting to know his thoughts on an atrocity and he points them to their own atrocity. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the murdered Galileans, but sadly, it's according to him, they've already perished. Jesus' immediate focus is on those whom he's with, who are still alive, in whom he is hoping to make a difference. Jesus' immediate focus is on them not perishing. Then Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, 
Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam, however you spell it, I'll pronounce that, fell on them. Now, apparently, Jesus is aware of another awful happening um, that had happened. And now, Jesus these days could often, or ordinarily, could have said something like, what about those people who died in Grenfell Tower in the fire? Or what about this bus sack, the bus crash in Seven Oaks Road? Jesus said in verse 4, all those 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam when it fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now I can see two important points here. First one is that no one knows when they're going to die. Take the footballer on the pitch in the uh, Euro football, for example. Fit, healthy, suddenly boom. If it wasn't for the, what do they call it, AED or whatever it is we learned yesterday? The defibrillator. If it wasn't for the medics and the defibrillator, because he died. And they resuscitated him. We brought him back. So Jesus is saying, you don't know when you're going to, no one knows when you're going to die. And the other thing is, it seems, according to Jesus, that physical death, however and whenever it comes, is the sealing moment. Before death, there's always the opportunity to repent and be saved, to believe in the Son and receive eternal life. But when death comes, it seems the window of choice closes. It's then too late. No wonder there's an urgency in Jesus' message. The error of the people speaking to Jesus was that they were looking at death as the ultimate catastrophe. How awful that these people died in that tower block fire. We usually consider death as the worst thing that could happen to someone. But Jesus is saying there's something far worse than death. And that is to perish in their death. Jesus later went on to describe it as, actually, we'll, we'll see it. John 8, turn to John 8. We'll see what Jesus describes someone perishing as. These guys, in the Galileans and the people in the Tower of Siloam. Jesus described it like this, John eight twenty four. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. That's what he's describing. These people died in their sins. They perished. And you too, if you don't believe in me, you also will die in your sins. That's what perishing is. It's dying, and at that moment, you're in sin. You're sinful. You're guilty before God. Why is it so bad to die in sin and perish? What is the problem with dying in sin? Well, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews 9 it says this, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. That is why it is such an awful thing to die in someone's sins, in your sins, because once you die, you have to face judgment. That's the reality. That's the way it is. That's how Jesus knew how it is. So he is urgently, look, whatever you think about these people, whatever happened, don't perish. Don't you perish. 
A righteous and holy God has to punish sin. Otherwise, he would not be righteous, holy, and just. He wouldn't be loving either. But here's where the average person on the street would argue that if God is loving and kind, when I die, he will let me off. Now, if you're you're guilty of a crime in this country and you go before a judge and you say, Judge, I know you're kind and loving. I know you'll let me off. If if he he or she is a good, kind, and actually good, faithful judge, will they let you off? No. They have to do what's right. They won't let you off. How about if I say, I'm really, really sorry as I stand before the judge. Well, the judge might say, I'm glad you're sorry. But that doesn't wipe away your crime. You have to be punished. It's usually at this point that the person on the street, that they will claim, yes, but I'm a good person. And God will take that into account. I'm a good person, I've done good things. Well, it depends on whose standard you are actually applying the standard of goodness to. Compared to other people, you probably are good. But actually, that's not the standard that you're judged by. Anyone know, particularly those who have done the evangelism course, know what standard everyone is judged by? The Ten Commandments. Actually, turn to Romans 3, verse 19. Paul explains it like this. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, that's the Ten Commandments, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So the Ten Commandments hold the whole world accountable to God in judgment and true recognition of that should really shut up even the most boastful of mouths when they think they're good, when they think they're just, when they actually see themselves in front of the Ten Commandments. Oh dear. Now let's check to see if the average person is actually good by God's standards. <clears throat> Mr. So-and-so, have you broken the Ten Commandments? Oh no, I don't think so. I think I've been all right. Have you ever told a barefaced lie in your life? Uh, yeah, quite a few times. Okay. That's the ninth commandment you've broken. Have you ever stolen anything from your family or from the government, from a shop or anything like that? Well, if you have, you've broken the eighth commandment. So, so far, we should admit to being a lying thief. Wait a minute, I've only stolen once and that was ages ago. That doesn't make me a thief. Well, how many times does someone need to commit murder to become a murderer? Not once. But that was years ago. I don't steal anymore. Well, when it comes to sin, there's no time limit. After 10 years, it doesn't get forgotten about, unfortunately. How about the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Have you ever used your mother's name as a cuss word? No, I wouldn't. That'd be disrespectful. Have you ever used God's name? 
The God who created you gave you life as a cuss word? Oh, yeah. Well, that's just three commandments we've looked at. We're not going to look at the other seven. But remember, adultery. And Jesus said, if you even look at someone lustfully in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. That's how high God's standards are. He even includes your thought life in this. So, when you stand before God in judgment, will you be guilty or innocent? Well, if I'm honest, I'd have to say I'm guilty. But I'm good compared to others. I haven't murdered anyone. Well, Jesus said, if you break one commandment, it's as if you've broken them all. It's a bit like hanging from a chain. If one link breaks, you're going to fall. So, by God's standards, are you guilty or innocent? Guilty, I guess. So if you're guilty, would you go to heaven or hell? Well, I think I'd go to heaven because God's good and you know, he loves me. He's forgiving, isn't he? That's what you told me. Okay. But if you stood in front of a judge, like we've already said, and he's good, would he let you off? No, he couldn't. To be right and just, you would have to be punished according to the law. So there's no good just relying on him being forgiven. So, if you stood before God in judgment and you're guilty, would you go to heaven or hell? Well, eventually you hope someone would admit, well, I guess hell, I guess. Does that scare you? Does that worry you? But here is how you understand the love and the goodness of God. You know, the goodness of God is meant to lead people to repentance. Well, just seeing his wonderful things in creation isn't good enough for some people. They really need to understand what his true goodness means. And this is that... You are guilty, you are perishing, but God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die in your place. Just imagine if you were guilty in court, about to be fined or imprisoned, and someone came along and said, I want to pay the fine for them. Then the judge could legally, rightfully, let you go. The price has been paid. You know what Jesus said? It is finished. Which apparently in Greek is translated telestize it, which is it is paid in full. And that is why God is good. Because we're not in our own eyes. That is salvation. That is why John 3.16 is so powerful to everyone. And the two things... Well, actually, I'll just finish off Hebrews 9. Will we, did we turn to Hebrews 9? Yeah? It says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, the next bit of the sentence is, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Who are the many? The ones who believe in Jesus, who are born again and have eternal life. And the two things that God, the judge, or actually Jesus Christ is the judge, requires repentance and trust. Repent means to turn from your own self-righteousness. I'm all right. I can sort myself out. Turn from that to God. And secondly, to trust, believe, cling to Jesus Christ and what he did for you. 
If you were about to jump 30,000 feet from a plane, you wouldn't just think about the parachute that was next to you, would you? People just sometimes just think about Jesus. But they don't actually put him on. You know, you'd put that parachute on when you cling to it. Because you're just about to jump. Well, for those who still think, I'm okay, I'm good enough, I'll sort it out when I get there, if, it's, if there is any there, they are like someone who is just about to jump from the same plane without a parachute, expecting to flap their arms and save themselves. It's not going to work, is it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In very quick closing, I heard an American police sergeant explain it like this. For God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, his greatest company, that he gave his greatest act, his one and only son, his greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction, shall not perish. That's God's greatest promise. But, which is the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life. The greatest possession. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, praise you God. I've used up five minutes of the 15 minutes of grace. So, bless you all and thank you. And if you do need help in turning to Jesus, repenting and putting your trust in him, receiving that forgiveness and receiving the eternal life, and being born again, grab a Bible and look up Psalm 51. That is a wonderful psalm to lead you in a prayer of repentance and God save me. So thank you and bless you all.